This is episode 144. Those of you who are watching me on YouTube and are wondering why am I wearing a hat, a winter hat, it is because it's a Cooley Duty Farm winter hat. And that means that I actually was on the farm and I was talking with our friend James Foley. James is a farmer, is a dairy farmer, and he's running this uh, regenerative farming operations. But more importantly, James managed to cut all chemical nitrogen inputs. Um, and this is very interesting because nitrogen and farming hit the headlines uh, a couple of months back. And it seems like it will hit the headlines again, this time in Ireland. Um, so I guess that's a very timely episode. And, and, and we talked with James about various farming practices, but also how he get to the point where he can get away without any chemical nitrogen inputs and whether this is better or worse and what benefits it has for the biodiversity and, and such. Uh, we covered a lot of topics uh, other than um, obvious one uh, about the nitrogen inputs, but we also talked about uh, multi-species pasture, about uh, pasture-fed, grass-fed beef, we talk about various uh, farming practices. We talk about perception of farming in the social media. We talk about methane emissions. The whole deal. Excellent conversation. Um, very educational. And especially uh, for all, all of you farmers out there. I'm sure there are a few farmers who are listening to this podcast. But even if you're not interested in farming in terms of actually farming... Uh, and you're just interested in the biodiversity and the environment, well, that's an episode for you as well. Um, James is dropping a uh, knowledge bombs all the time, and he also is sharing his uh, huge experience. He's very well read and very well educated in uh, terms of what he does, and he was gracious enough to share all that knowledge with you uh, through my podcast. So, um, yeah, I'm sure you will enjoy this episode. And as always, I am encouraging you to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. Um, subscribe to the newsletter. In the newsletter, there is a lot of additional information and a lot of additional stuff that is not in the podcast, like links to the articles that you can uh, research the subjects we talk about on the podcast further and some other news, for example, in this um, edition of the newsletter. There is my summary of the Sea Monitor Straits conference. I had a pleasure to attend. Um, so yeah, uh, anything that's environmentally important is in my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. So go in there uh, and subscribe. So folks, that's it for this introduction. I'm not going to be dragging this any longer. And uh, yeah, enjoy the podcast. James, welcome to the show. <laughs> thanks, thanks very much, uh, Tommy. Pleasure. And uh, my pleasure. Thanks for invitation. It was uh, it was great to uh, be, you know, guided around the farm. You've shown me a lot of things, and I think we're gonna create some. Or I'm gonna create some more material out of that. 
Um, but for now, just sit down here for a podcast. It's the first podcast in like over a year, face to face. Yeah, it's it's been a strange time, but yeah, nice to be opened up again properly. And uh, yeah, meeting people face to face. It's like a, it's a novelty you now. <laughs> it's very good. It's very good. Uh, listen, let's jump right into it. Um, we're on your farm. You're a farmer. Do you think that farming is the biggest threat to biodiversity? What's your view on this? Um, well, in some ways, I suppose, like, it's 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 a lot of the land area, like, really, you know, so what happens on the farming area itself, you know, uh, we can be a threat or we can be positive as well. But, uh, like, I suppose over the last few years where a lot of, uh, a lot of farms would be, you know, uh, say grain or whatever, they'd be growing one crop, uh, Versus, like we'll say, a natural ecosystem would be multiple crops and multiple different types of uh, plants and animals, or whatever. What happens in farming? You're, you're farming one one plant or one cow or one sheep or whatever. A lot of the time, anyway, that's the way it's gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, no, I think we can. I think we can kind of move with the times now again and um, kind of have more biodiversity on our farms. You know, as against like we, we look, we know there is a problem out there. Um, and uh, we just kind of need to kind of address it a little bit, you know. Yeah. And this is what you're trying to do on your farm. Yeah. Well, I suppose we started from a, a like, would say just to, uh, you know, we're, we're in organic conversion, we're dairy farm. And um, we've, you know, over the last few years, we kind of started with a, uh, the whole idea was to kind of cut our costs. And we've got um, one of the bigger bills on our farm was nitrogen. And, um, and it's, you know, it's still the case in most farms. We, we don't use any chemical nitrogen anymore. Um, but it was, you know, it's a big input. And we kind of started from that point of view that, uh, you know, recycling of nutrients or whatever on our farm, very little actually leaves in milk and meat as such in terms of minerals and all that kind of stuff. But we, you know, we kind of figured that there has to be another way to farm and hold on to these things and not be buying in all these inputs and, uh you know we figured we were doing something wrong so we tried to kind of find the solutions for that and um i suppose since opening up of social media and everything else we're seeing farmers doing different things all over the world and um we're kind of you know and scientists as well doing different things interesting things that kind of play into uh kind of understanding all of this as well but um you know in in on the farm itself we're we're um we're trying to buy in less inputs than ever before and it's it's that's a cost thing you know uh first and foremost but you know the the biodiversity and all these things like i mean they can be a secondary thing as such but you know because on a farm you have to make money first you know uh but we're kind of hoping we can do that uh, over the next few years yeah so how would you describe the different you know like how different your practices are compare because i'm presuming they're they're different to compare to like a mainstream farming if there is even such a thing so so if you can if you can tell us you know like how 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 different that is compared to what's uh i don't know again um what the term is whether it's a mainstream farming mm-hmm. or like you know, uh, yeah uh, conventional farmer conventional farming yeah. that's the word i was using <laughs> lo- 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 i have for. heard it described that it does nothing conventional about it because if you're talking about conventional, you'd be taking in the last hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, and that, you know, I suppose you could call it a chemical farming system or what have you. But look, um, I suppose in some ways what we're doing is actually almost the same as what we were doing before. But what we're kind of managing the land a little bit differently. 
um, we're kind of we're, what we've done primarily is we bring bringing in these uh, multi-species swords and uh, versus the normal monoculture ryegrass. So you know, a multi-species sward is a um, it's a kind of a mixture of different plants, which would be kind of more like you have in a in a wild ecosystem. Uh, so we have legumes, herbs, and grasses, and um, you know, I suppose the th- the theory behind it is that. Uh, when they're all mixed together, they actually grow better than the sum of their parts. And that is what we've been finding. But, you know, like there is scientific evidence behind all that as well. Uh, it's not just, you know, we didn't do it kind of in a wing and a prayer. Um, but, you know, th- as farmers are finding it out from, you know, across the world and, and uh, that this kind of works, um, any kind of polyculture is better than a monoculture for biodiversity. The biggest problem, I suppose, is harvesting. Uh, you know, if you're talking about wheat and barley and different things like that, you have to kind of, for uh, marketing purposes, you need one thing. But with cows, they can have all these different plants and it doesn't matter about the marketing. They can just sort it out for themselves, you know. So um, in terms of, you know, we leave our cows out every day. We move our cows uh, um, daily or twice daily. Um, that would have been what we were doing before. Um you know, rotating uh, around our fields and giving it a rest period in between. And, um, you know, we still have winter housing, we still have slurry, we still have different things like that, you know, like every other farmer or most conventional farmers. But in terms of the feeding situation is a little bit different because we're not we're not putting the fertilizers out now that we were on our grassland. And we're kind of, um, you know, it seems to be going well so far anyway, you know. We've been at it for four or five years now. For listeners' benefit, um is is this so this is like a pasture fed mm-hmm. uh cow like can you can you explain like for because of the, a lot of people who are tuning into this they're they're no you know very little about farming and i suppose they they hear in the social media and everywhere different various things about farming and farmers mm-hmm. and this is part of a discussion we had uh today which is which is one of the benefits of being able to record online mm-hmm. offline we can meet and hang out and uh, have a chat mm-hmm. of record. So we were talking about this, like, that, that people hear often things about farming, farming practices, relation to biodiversity. And then like one person said it and then another repeated and then another repeated. And then all of a sudden it becomes like a mantra and, and everybody's repeating one thing without even knowing what they're talking about. So can you tell us like what is is this the grass fed is is it like what are the differences and if it's not grass fed what it can be and and, and so on yeah um we apart from we'd say we call it what we're growing in our fields we call it pasture rather than grass because there's a lot more than just grass species in there um but in terms of what what is kind of grass fed you have to have a, there's a certain standard, but we're not really adhering to that in general. You know, there's not a, like, like in organic, we'll say you have a certain set of rules or whatever. Um, I know for marketing purposes, there is a definition of grass fed. Uh, I think they more so do it in the States. Uh, but like I would say, most farmers in Ireland now would be, um, you know, the most of the diet of the cow would be coming from, from grass out in the field. And they would be saving some silage uh, from that grass, and they'd probably be buying in some some sort of cereals or something to help with, uh, you know, just balance up with the diet or whatever to finish their animals or 
with cow with uh, milking cows to help with a little bit more production or whatever. And we would have been we would still be not much different than that end of things. Uh, but we do grow some of our other crops that for our silages, not just our pasture silages. We've been growing um grain um on our outside blocks, which is kind of the partly the reason partly the um you know the reason behind it is because I would say when you feed a grain, you know, you do get good performance in your um uh daily gains of cattle and milk yields and that kind of stuff, especially in the winter. Um so we, we on our outside blocks we've been growing crops like um peas, barley and oats mixed together and and you know, they don't need any sprays. There's a legume in there that fixes the nitrogen um and you just cut it once a year and you know it's easier for silage making or whatever when you're only cutting once a year especially when you have a bit of distance to travel with the so that's a kind of an economic thing but um since we're organic moving towards organic we're trying to cut down as much as we can on the bought in feed whether that's silages or you know we have bought in maize or beet or sugar beet that kind of stuff off other farmers before uh we're we're gonna have well we're gonna have to kind of cut down that because from here on we're gonna have to buy only organic feed if we're buying any feed but it's kind of it's more of a case of trying to get a little bit more self-sufficient on the farm so you know it it isn't the worst thing in the world to have grain in a cow's diet or whatever but um it's uh you know i i kind of feel it's it's when you have a mixture of plants and uh, a proper mixture in the diet itself you're going to get the richness in the flavors and all that in your in your milk and meat when you have a mixture rather than just one you know you you could technically have grass fed uh from a single species of grass mm. and that wouldn't be very rich and you know a very rich diet for a cow and you know you technically you could get within the grass fed um kind of limitations or whatever the the standards would say yeah. the standards for um for what would be called, counted as being grass fed I, th- I think they say 90% of the diet has to be grass yeah. but you could get within that and still not be you know you could be using a lot of nitrogen and um you know it's not necessarily a natural diet yeah. you know really natural diet and that would be what someone I, I, I would reckon that a consumer would be expecting, um, you know, a real natural diet if you're talking about buying grass-fed meat, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's a complicated answer and a complicated question. You know, it's, it, there's nothing simple in uh, in the way things are labeled and, you know, whether it's organic or conventional or whatever, you know, there's, there's um, the you know, every farm actually does different things as well. So to box everything up into one uh, package and, uh, you know, say that this is, you know, a certain product, you know, like Kerrygold or even like the the uh, the cheeses from the south of France and, and uh, Italy and all them. Some of them actually have set specific uh, practices that they can do on farm, but nobody else from outside the region can, can make that. Uh, yes. So, you know, those are the type of things that actually probably would be a good idea economically point point of view uh and marketing point of view but um at the moment you know we're not we'd probably what we'd be doing four or five years time probably be a little bit different than what we're doing now 
Yeah. Um, so the so the the practice evolves kind of over time. Yeah, and as as we learn more, you know, we're like I mean, we're learning from other farmers all the time. There's something to pick up from every farm as to what they're doing. You know, every farmer is doing something probably better than anyone else, and um, there's always things you can pick up on. And it's just a case of kind of uh, just watching out for things and keeping your mind open to new things. And maybe there's a better way we can do it. You know. Mm. Yeah. Well, you, you you said that you know you started <coughs> you started on this journey. It was kind of like motivated with uh, financially with the inputs and and having less inputs and so on. But what was the moment where where you knew this is going to work? Did you know from the very beginning that yep, this is the right thing and it's going to work and no. we're going to be successful? <laughs> Or was it like you tried and and then when you tried, like what was this moment when you? when you were convinced um, that it that it yeah work. the um the first time we planted one of these multi-species swords was in 2018 but we've been looking at it i said uh we're fa i'm farming with my father and and mother and my wife uh Claude, and um you know we've we've been you don't just make a decision on a farm most of the time just yourself so we've been talking about this um since much longer ago than that four or five years previous to that we're looking at things and seeing guys on youtube doing things and kind of said that's interesting but would it work here and you know uh we eventually plucked up the courage in 2018 to plant a field and um at at first you know uh it was a f normally when you're putting in a grass field you spray off any other plants and you can't do that with a multi-species swarm because they're all different herbs and whatever else and there's no specific there's no herbicide that can take out all the other weeds so we're kind of left with uh if there was weeds going to come up we weren't going to be able to do anything about them really and uh from the first you know what we would call weeds you know docks are one of them that are all were always a, a problem on grassland and uh they started to come up uh that very first planting and uh After a while, I didn't see them anymore. They were outcompeted by the um, by the other herbs that we had in the mix, because in a normal grassland situation, uh, docks are a very deep rooted plant, and they normally have a free run at it in in a normal perennial ryegrass mm -hmm. pasture. Once you, they get established, they they go below the root zone, and there's no competition at all. So that's why you often see a lot of ducks in, in grasslands. And um, so we weren't seeing that as much. Uh, but like, you know, I, I'd i say um, I was terrified. <laughs> I was terrified that my father was like, what, what are you doing here? You know, <laughs> the, the whole field so is full of weeds. You know? uh, yeah, like he, no, he, he was like, he was on board enough. But at the same time, you know, uh where none of us are above criticism of ourselves or but you yeah. know of each other and uh, like if something if we're doing something that doesn't work out and you thought it might work out you know you have to you have to be able to defend it and if you mm -hmm. couldn't defend it to your your own folks then you know yeah uh, <laughs> you know i suppose that's kind of you know you have that anything you're anytime you're trying something new you're going to have that yeah And uh, but ulti I guess that the ultimate defense of it is in the balance sheets at the end of the year. Yeah, it is. It is like so. If just say, for example, you have got some weeds in this new uh, setup, whereas you're used to having a really clean kind of a lawn look about the farm, 
um, you know, you, you kind of, you know, even you do actually get to, you do actually, it, it is a little bit messier looking, I suppose, um, compared to what we were used to. Um, it's not like Croke Park anymore, you know. Yeah, uh, but, but these, are these per- perceptions, right? It's like a, it, it, like it, like in the lawns as well. Like, oh, it needs to be such a yeah. You know, there's this this phrase used obsession with tidiness. So this is a, like like a little bit of. of oh, I know, and that that's hard to get out of my mind as well as everyone else's mind. That's just uh, it's kind of bet into us from years and years, you know. Um, but we'll say you ultimately, um, if you have some weeds or whatever. Uh, you like you look. You can appreciate them from the biodiversity and the things. Anyway, you know if you're open to that, I suppose. But it, from the financial point of view, you don't have to care about biodiversity as such. If the thing is performing for you, and if there's enough of pasture there for the cows to eat, and they're milking well or producing the beef or whatever you need to produce, if they're doing that, then you you get over it. You know. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's, I'm saying that to guys all the time. It's like biodiversity and all that is actually a secondary benefit of this. It's, it's, this is a business-focused idea first for us. Like, mm-hmm. uh, Now, I mean, we love nature and all that. We love birds and the different animals. And it's good. And, and it's kind of, it's like, uh, it's kind of an indicator, I suppose, that something good is happening in the soil when you see more birds and you see more worms and what have you. When you're seeing that, you're actually feeling like that, even if even if it's not already reflected in your financial performance or whatever, um, you, you kind of feel like things are going the right way, you know? You just naturally feel that. It's kind of a, you know, if you're in a field with a, a lot hmm. of bees and what have you, versus a, a, a really quiet field, you kind of, you, you just feel good. Yeah. You know, it just makes you feel better. And I, that, that's something that I never thought was going to, I never, uh, never thought about that. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, like we, we are, we are here, uh, we're recording this podcast late January. Um, so, but even, even though, even though it's late January, we went out in the fields and, and you can see the difference between you're, you're showing me two fields, one kind of like a mono, monoculture. And one, like you said, there was like a sixteen species. They get mm-hmm. it right, twelve, yeah. sixteen yeah. species of uh, of different grasses and herbs and legumes and so on. And it it looked like to to my eye, the 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 the, the one with the mixed species looked better mm-hmm. because there's like more variety, you know, yeah. like a leaves and this and that. And and again, that's that's only January. I can only imagine how it's gonna look like in the in the summer. Um, yeah, um, it's. I kind of, uh, I'm only borrowing a phrase from someone else, but I think the, with this, with the ryegrass that we've been using over the years, going back, you know, decades, I suppose now, um, it's like we're farming in a flower pot, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it, it, it is like you, you saw the depth of those roots today. Yeah. They just went down a little bit and then they stopped. Nothing then after that. Whereas the other ones were, they're going down deeper and they're, reaching down in there for more moisture and more uh, they don't need moisture at the moment but mm-hmm. in the summertime last summer there was a bit of a drought around here and the place there greener a lot longer than a lot of the neighbors did and you know a lot of the neighbors would have been feeding silage like a same as they would have been in the middle of winter um yeah. so they would have been you know they would have been cutting down what feed they would have had for this this winter and um it's a big cost as well and uh, so uh, resiliency is another thing like some of these plants will grow when it's warm 
some will grow when it's colder it doesn't matter what the weather conditions are something is going to grow well you know that it's that it's the sweet spot for them and um you know and that's aside from the whole benefits to the cow of having a mixed diet like you know like a human diet like you know we all know we all know we should have a mixture of different things and um you know well, I, I don't even know why we thought it would be a good idea you know going back to years why would we thought that one plant would have been <laughs> the best plant why only one plant but look there's reasons behind it but um we got to a stage where we'd never knew any different than it, it didn't even come into our minds about growing mixtures of of different plants yeah. just didn't even come into our minds because yeah. that that wasn't what was going on in our in the colleges and whatever the agricultural training yeah. Uh, I think it's coming more and more. I, I think it's coming more and more now with the uh, soil health mm-hmm. and and it, because it's, it, what's fascinating is that this all kind of like a is is all intertwined, right? There's there's financial aspect of this all, right? But then there is a, a biodiversity and the soil and the nutrients in the soil, and then circulating that into the actual animals into the quality mm-hmm. of the meat and quality of the milk and and all that and and i guess your your soil let's talk about soils like i presume that this, these soils are much higher quality and yeah and those multi-species no we we haven't tested them as such but like anything um yeah, any research i've seen about it um the carbon storage in these soils, when the roots are deeper, uh, the soils can take in a lot, whole lot more carbon. Um, now, you know, it's probably cycling carbon, but it's more of it in the soil at any one time. And, you know, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, um, it's not doing anything for us up there, you know, but if it's in the soil and if it's in a microbe or something else that's been eaten by another microbe and that's all feeding into our the nutrition for our plants and um if that's the case and the more of that you have the more life you have in your soil the more it's usually there's more carbon but it's um it's more productive yeah. and like most you know uh i suppose an indicator of of uh, farm profitability i've seen i've seen studies saying that the more carbon you have in your soil uh, the more profitable the farm is you know, just from the fact that your farm is more productive because it's more more nutrients available. And no, I mean, that look, there's the caveat to that is in peat soils, you have you have uh, carbon stored there, but it's in uh, anaerobic conditions, but it's not it's not cycling carbon. But if you're talking about a soils like what we have here, um, the carbon is, is pretty much mostly alive, you know, it's just on a microscopic level. But if you're testing it of a day and, you know, if you test it in next year or the year after, you'll probably find that the two fields we looked at today, one of them is significantly higher in carbon than the other one. Uh, but like, like, look, it's like uh, the biodiversity thing. Uh, we're not getting paid for carbon right now. I don't know. It might change. Is it coming? Uh, maybe. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, the, there's prob- possibly two sides to that. Hmm. as to whether it's a good thing or a bad thing to get paid for it. But it's in our interest to have more carbon in our soils. Yeah. So why would we not farm for that? You know, yeah. Just, yeah. you know, or have that in mind as you're trying to kind of design what way you farm, I suppose. Are your neighbors are, you know, practicing <laughs> similar um, type of farming 
RIR, which is like a one around in the area. Yeah. So, so really, uh, ultimately, where I'm heading with this question is like, what was the reaction of your other farmers, of your neighbors, when you were starting that? It was like, oh, he's completely nuts. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, probably thought we were nuts. But at the same time, um, you know, look, our neighbors know us. We get on well with our neighbors. And uh, they're not doing what we're doing. But I feel that, and it's the same world over, and with farms that kind of start off doing something like this for, at start, there's kind of an early adopters or something. Mm-hmm. It takes a while for most, it could take 20 or 30 years before everyone starts doing what we're doing now or before the advisory services start taking on board that. It takes a few years to, you know, to kind of catch up with what the... Uh, what the you know what the farmers at the cutting edge are doing now you know uh, and <laughs> i said to you already there's probably a lot of things in the farm we're not doing as good as we probably could but you know uh, you know like i said as well like every farmer is doing something well and but i know we're you know we're, we're going the right direction you know we're going the right direction i think with what we're doing in the line of um the long-term kind of profitability in the farm so um you know, from that end of things, worrying about what the neighbors think isn't top of the agenda at all. <laughs> but you do have to kind of get a thick skin, I suppose, or, or not to think about them at all uh, in that way. Only, like, when they're ready to to kind of ask you questions or whatever, like, I mean, I'm open to, you know, myself and my father, like, we, you know, we talk to anyone, no problem. Are you, you talking know? to me now? Right talking now. to you now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, we'll talk to people and... um I don't think hiding the information and like keeping it close to our chest is going to do us any good in the long run. Mm-hmm. And um, but yeah, look, I mean, we welcome in anyone. And like, look, I mean, ten years ago, if we said what we're doing now, we would have said we were mad as well, you know, hmm. ourselves about, really? about ourselves. Probably would have, you know, because I hadn't heard any of this stuff, you know. Right. So, so it was like a knowledge gap, really. Yeah, yeah, it was completely like um, I've only come across some of this stuff recently, but there was a lot of. Uh, there was a lot of research done pre-fertilizers, uh, you know, pre-the mass scale fertilizer usage, um, pre-World War II. And uh, there was a lot known about um, about these mixed species swords, uh, about what the benefits they had at the time. But I suppose once World War II came, there was a cheap source of nitrogen and um, there was in the UK and in Europe, I suppose, there was an almost starvation there after the war for the first, for the f- five or six years after the war, there was rations in Ireland and the nitrogen did come in handy that time because the soils had been, they, there was compulsory tillage. So uh, these soils, you know, they would have had a fertility in the grassland. Um, but when they plowed them up, then they were using up all that nitrogen and, um, when they got this, uh, mis- you know, this cheap um, amendment to the soil, and they got, you know, they got huge responses in the crop yields. Um, you know, it was, you know, it was it, it was economic, and you know, nobody knew what the long term ben- long term effects would be. But um, was that true that there was uh, nitrogen was produced for the for the military needs for the war effort? 
and there were like a massive f factories doing a lot producing a lot of the nitrogen and it was kind of like a sort of coincidence like oh actually we can still mm -hmm. keep producing that and, and use it in farming i think they had used some of uh some of these compounds before the war okay. but it was seen as an opportunity yeah they had all the factories um for making the bombs and uh hmm. you know i mean nitrogen and phosphorus and all them they like they're you know that's what they use for bombs so yeah. um yeah so uh, i suppose it was a cheap thing uh there was a population that were nearly hungry or or you know on starvation um so it wasn't a bad thing at the time it was you know long-term consequences weren't known about now at the same time there was some soil scientists that said look i mean this should be a short-term hmm. usage and uh but the way funding works for agricultural research um it kind of meant that any kind of high input kind of a setup when you know who was sponsoring the universities and what have you <laughs> you know so that's kind of instead when like we were on the kind of a cusp of understanding how uh nature creates its own nitrogen and all that kind of stuff it's, well it's not that we didn't know anything about it but we were kind of close to kind of understanding what we needed to do to make our soils more fertile naturally and um but all that knowledge got kind of forgotten for 70 80 years mm. and uh it's been researched again now but if you actually look back far enough some of that research has already been done um close on 100 years ago yeah and uh, well listen that we we, we talked about on the podcast many times about the you know like you like you said uh scientific process and science is also not ideal not perfect yeah. and, and and quite often like mm. you said there are there are interests or uh, you know even even nothing sinister but there, there's like more funding or more interest in some other area and that's what's getting researched and that's where you know the the, the things are going um, yeah well there's um in the last few years there's been a, an uptick in uh, knowledge about um soils and like when i was in college there was we had a modules on soil science uh but the biology end of it wasn't really being um kind of pushed home i suppose it was the chemical and the physical and you know whether compaction or just mm. like npk nitrogen whatever and um so that was the way soils were taught at that time it was incredibly boring <laughs> whereas now it's um what there's been advances in you know uh microscopes and different dna technology for understanding what oh, yes. actual microbes are there and what have you but a lot of that work was done in the kind of the, the pure sciences um and they would have probably been government funding but what's happening now is basically they're um scientists are able to tell you what's happened like farm, farmers are already doing things they're showing things are happening on the ground but the scientists are now only now able to actually explain them yeah you know, to any degree uh so you know but the fact that we didn't really weren't able to connect with farmers that were doing kind of wild things i suppose um hmm. you know one farmer might be doing one thing and he wouldn't know about another farmer another place and you know putting it all together would have been um difficult you know yeah. impossible i suppose yeah james like w would you say what are the biggest barriers for farmers to start 
start doing what you're doing, meaning having um, postures that are multi-species. Um, we, we can we can talk about uh, soil compaction as well because that was one other differences difference that you showed me between these two fields uh, that the, that the soil is much less compacted. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about it, it seems like it's a no brainer. It's just like, yeah. like why, why, why everybody doesn't do that. So what are the barriers f you, you think for other farmers to, to, to go ahead and, and, and proceed? Well, I'd say that there's a knowledge gap, like, um, even the advisory services, um, don't know a lot about it. Um, oh, really? they've, they've been researching recently, but, um, you know what you can do in a in a trial is a lot different than what we can do you know we can make a call on the farm and say right okay i can see the difference i don't necessarily have to measure it exactly mm -hmm. but i can see a difference almost straight away then i'll you know whereas an advisory service has to go and actually measure everything and before they can tell uh the, before they can give the advice that we need to go this way or something you know it's so they actually have to measure everything that could take 10 years mm. You know, um, and only then, you know, that's, then this knowledge transfer and all that kind of stuff that takes a while as well. And, but, um, the biggest thing is like, we kind of, I suppose we went over to England and, uh, they'd been, a lot of farmers over there had been kind of taking this on long before us. Um, there would be Cotswold seeds would be, um, seed company over there that we got the first seeds from. They would have knowledge going back 30 years, probably um about all these different mixtures of seeds and whatever and um they i don't know how they held on to the knowledge but they had the knowledge there uh, long before us so we we went over and we visited farms in england and we saw it on the farm so it's one thing having it in theory and knowing it and you know seeing it uh, on youtube or whatever but actually seeing it in the field uh it's kind of like you know the easiest way it's just seeing is believing i suppose like <laughs> you know when you can actually see it True. it's kind of hard to knock it on the head then you know um so it's a case of farmers uh i know there's a lot of farmers have put in an acre or to five acres in the last two years and um you know most of them have gone on pretty well and uh from there you know they're not fools like they're not going to just reseed all the farm in one year mm -hmm. um because that wouldn't be you know you'd be taking a big risk if it didn't work if you didn't know that it worked yeah so it just take takes a bit of time to get through to um you know i suppose we started off in 2018 so it's five years later now you know uh i wouldn't be doing the same thing now that i would have done in 2019 oh. because you know now we have a bit more experience what would and you we do kind of know well i suppose we would have probably seeded more quicker you know <laughs> that would have been okay. it but but that wouldn't have been a good that wouldn't have been the right thing to do because we weren't sure at the time yeah but now we are and um yeah hindsight are always 2020 yeah right? but like i mean you it's like uh growing fruit trees or something like that like i mean we, we you know we have a handful of apples and different things outside there and like it'd be fine to say we we uh, put them all in the first year but like you know whether it's varieties or actually learning how to actually grow them and prune them and everything else mm -hmm. probably better off have a small few first before yeah. you go into having thousands of trees or yeah. whatever you know yeah. so th there is it does make sense not to change everything too quickly always you know you're better off to kind of take it step by step you know uh but um like 
there is an, uh, a lot of farmers in Ireland now have a field or two of of uh, of a multi-species mix. Now, I suppose some of them are probably five or six species. I kind of don't reckon that's enough to get the real benefits. Uh, but it's it's a lot better than just one species. And um, also uh, another thing uh, would be some of them are actually still spreading nitrogen on those. No. Um, and it's really no benefit. And actually doesn't, the herbs and the clovers don't really do so well when there's nitrogen being spread on them because they're not actually really all adapted to getting nitrogen on them. And even mm. the clover, it kind of doesn't really fix any nitrogen when there's nitrogen available. So it favors the grass and then you end up with all grass anyway at the end if yeah. you go that way. So um, there is a little bit of, you know, there is there is a few tips and things to learn, all right? But, um, and like, you know, there's a lot of things we don't know as well. Um, and we're just we're hoping to kind of find out over the next few years what's yeah. a better be- better ways of managing it even, you know. Yeah. So how you would you describe your practice? Is it like regenerative farming or is it like, is it, is it yeah, to, to um, describe it? I, I heard that there's a there's term no dig, but it's probably something else. Yeah, dig. like no dig and regenerative farming. And um, I suppose one thing we can say is, is we've signed up to be organic, but you can be, you possibly um you know you might be doing a lot of tillage every year and usually that's not seen as being regenerative Mm -hmm. trying to leave the soil intact as much as you can is um would be normally you know it the i suppose the network of um air and water flow through the soil works better if it's kind of left there a bit longer you know Mm. um a single plant, uh, plant for one year won't be able to make roots as deep as a perennial plant. Hmm. Uh, so you c- the soil structure won't be as good if you're plowing or something every year. But um, regenerative, I suppose, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to farm regeneratively, I suppose. Uh, whether I call myself a regenerative farmer, I, I just call myself a farmer, you know, yeah. because, you know, in the end of it, like that's what we are. Whether you call ourselves regenerative or not, we're trying to be regenerative, I suppose. But could mm-hmm. call ourselves regenerative, maybe might be presuming too much, maybe. But it's it the general idea of regenerative farming is that you um you kind of farm more like in nature's biomimicry or whatever, farm more in nature in the way nature does it. Um you know, which would be you you know, you don't leave a soil bare, um, you never have a soil bare, you have roots that are living in there in the ground all the time. You have a diversity of plants and animals, you know, grazing animals. And, um, you know, I, I, I might have left something out there. But, um, you know, you can be regenerative and be not completely organic, I suppose. Yeah. You could allow yourself the possibility to use a, a chemical once in a while. Yeah. Um, can you can you explain, like, in the, in the simple terms, like, why putting all those inputs, like nitrogen and others... Uh, depletes the soil what, why why, why does it leave the soil yeah I think part of it is the rooting depth isn't enough to hold on to the soil to hold on to the nutrients um, so that just say in that field of the ryegrass that you're in once um, if it's if the nitrogen is in the top few inches then it might be the roots might be able to hold on to it um, but once it goes below that then it's gone hmm. you know it's just going to leach and that might take a bit of time. But a lot of the chemical nitrogen 
it's fairly volatile. It's the most volatile fertilizer we have in that yeah. it can go into the atmosphere or the rivers very, very easily. Yeah. It's, it's very water soluble. And a lot of the time, a lot of, ni- a lot of time with nitrogen, if you don't um, have an actively growing plant, you could have more than half it end up in the atmosphere yeah. or the river. You know, so a lot of the time, even, you know, even if you are going to stay putting nitrogen on, putting it on at a time when there's actual, actual, actual growth is important. And that's not always what's been advised over the years. A lot of the nitrogen was being put out in January and when there's no growth and then there could be snow or there could be frost. Hmm. And a lot of that's going to be lost. So efficiency wise, just from the farming economics point of view, you don't want to do that, you know. But that's what was kind of being sold as as what we should do. Uh, so that, you know, that has to change now because the rivers aren't great. And um, and there is a lot of, there is greenhouse gas uh, emissions from nitrogen as well. Uh, nitrous oxide is something like 300 times more powerful than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. Whoa. And, you know, so every, you know, you don't want to waste that money either. Hmm. So, uh, it's a kind of a, and look, there's a lot of there's a lot of fuel used up in making nitrogen as well. There's, um, it's mostly made with natural gas, and it's the Haber Bosch processes. I think they need 600 degrees Celsius. Yeah. They can't really do it with electricity, so they can't get that kind of heat. So they have to use gas, and um, there's a lot of that escaping into the atmosphere as well. That's that's you know that's just, that's methane like, and. Um, hmm. So it's uh, it's a very costly process. Like it needs oil, or sorry, it needs gas, and then you're losing a lot of it, and then there's greenhouse gas emissions from it as well. So you know, there's a lot of costs there. Like you know, in the long run, if you can make the nitrogen on your farm just using plants, <laughs> and they can do it at room temperature, you know, that they can do it sense, at normal it? temperatures. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they need high pressures as well to make this uh, nitrogen. To the Haber Bosch pressure needs high high pressure. Yeah, you know you can do the you can you can make nitrogen at, at normal temperatures and at low pressure, yeah. and like you know without any problems and take care of biodiversity. At the yeah, end, you can said, you can do all those things. Like, look, like I said already, it's a win. It, it is a win win. It's just going to take a bit of time to kind of get it, everyone to on board as to why it works, uh, because like you need. To, I think you need to understand it a bit you know, understand what's going on as well. Can't just be told something works and just believe it. Yeah. You, know, you kind of need to understand what it is. And yeah. I presume there are people who would just say like, yeah, but for me, it will never work because... Yeah. Da, 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 right? Long, long, we can, long we can all come up with excuses as to why things won't work. And, yeah. you know... Um, people don't like change. Is that, is, that the part yeah. of, is that the part of that? Like, it kind of works... So why would we? I suppose know? I suppose there is a few criticisms, right, of the actual plants that we're growing. Oh. Some of them don't last overly long. Uh, I suppose you know they would be agriculturally bred plants. You know, for whatever reason, they would have been growing chicory for um, forest chicory. They would have been growing them in monocultures probably, but some of them don't last that long. I think part of, partly it's a management issue. Um, but partly as well because they may not be adapted to our climate as well as other plants, you know. So, like, ideally, I would say if we could use native plants, 
ones that we know work very very well uh you see them in the hedgerows you see uh birds for trefoil and different types of vetches and mm-hmm. um you know i i don't know the names of all of them but you see plants that are growing in the hedgerow that aren't growing five yards into the field and uh if ideally like you would say if you're in a mountain or whatever you're not going to be putting plants that grow well in the lowlands in yeah. france or something like this. and mm-hmm. that's what they're the seeds we're using so but a lot of the plants are native i suppose they would be growing here naturally but they're improved agricultural varieties so if you're talking about biodiversity you should really be talking about the diversity of the actual seeds themselves as well um so like you know but i kind of see it as planting a, a multi-species world i see it as kind of the first step in um creating the natural diversity on your farm and then over a longer term hopefully not having to put these seeds in at all that they will mm-hmm. regenerate themselves and seed themselves over time right so that but that does take a slightly different management than what we've been doing before yeah what would you what do you say is the next what would be next step to to take it even further is it is it like wood pastures there was a lot of talk about yeah. wood pastures as well and yeah and, and stuff like that so yeah so, you know knowing what you know now what you're expecting to be the, mm-hmm. the next step yeah no um definitely there's a there's a big um uh push on to get more forestry and all that and even on on farms working farms or whatever and i think uh there can yeah there is room for a lot more trees on farms and on our farm like it's very open so like the biggest issue with having uh, when you put in some trees on a farm like this is shelter for the animals mm. and um you know so like whether it's a hot day a windy day a cold day whatever they that'll help the animal performance and like that's you know we naturally know that but uh it's just been you know most hedgerows are cut very very harshly uh now you know there's a there's a, a reason for it when you do it on the roadside you know, you do need to have the road safe or whatever. But the in, in internal hedgerow, hedgerows are probably, you know, they're cut back very, very regularly and very severely. And uh, they won't do a whole lot for you in either biodiversity or in shelter, you mm. know. Now, there, look, the practical implications are that you need an electric fence wire. If you're to manage your animals properly, you need to be moving your animals regularly when you have a hedgerow that's expanding and expanding without cutting it back a little bit you're going to have their electric fence isn't going to work anymore because uh, there's going to be little little leaders and little shoots and little bits and pieces coming up and hitting the wire and no. taking out the electric fence wire so um it's it's easy to say just oh, don't touch them anymore but like there does need to be some kind of management of them mm-hmm. um but there is solutions to that too, like, you know, so because the cows will eat a good bit under, in, under the wire, they've, they could probably reach three or four feet in under the wire, maybe at least. Mm-hmm. And you can actually bring your wire out further out so that if you do occasionally hedge cut the field, you can actually keep control of that uh, reasonably, um, just, so that, just so that the wire is working. And um, because otherwise you're going to have to keep moving your wire in and in and in, in and you're in the middle and eventually you've, you've just got a, a tiny field in the center <laughs> you know you don't really have any pasture anymore but um i'd say like 
Um, the, you know, the, the the amount of tree like trees grow well. Cr- a lot of trees grow well when they've got more sunlight than they have when they're inside in the middle of a forest. Mm. And um, I, you know, I, I've um, I've been a neighbour who's very into his trees, but he's kind of living in a, a kind of a wood uh, mm. that he planted all the trees himself. They're, they're not um, they're not um, you know they're, they're not conifers or anything. But the trees are very very tall, but very very narrow. Mm-hmm. And like to me, they're re- they're reaching up for light. They're not the healthiest of trees. Like you know, yeah. the best trees I see are the ones that have loads of room around them, and you know, uh, they're reaching out over into a field of grass or something. Yeah, and it's not necessarily a bad thing for the grass either, because um, from the calculations I've seen, some calculations out there that you can actually, if you have, if you have one large tree in every acre along with some lower, you know, bush-type kind of trees that are a little bit lower down, in a hedgerow, um, you can actually have up to three times more photosynthesis than if you just have a simple monoculture, whether that's a forest monoculture or a grass monoculture. There's actually more light able to, more surface area. Um, So now, like, you know, in terms of us commercializing the, the trees, or cutting the trees, having it inside in a narrow forest, the trees grow straighter and they're easier to make for timber. So uh, whether we bo- whether we bother even trying to make our trees straight so that we could sell them for timber sometime <laughs> is probably debatable. Yeah. So in terms of, like there is a cost to planting trees and um, managing them. Uh, it's just that the direct cost back or the money back isn't seen directly. It's seen probably more so in saved money rather than actual money into your pocket from mm. a sale from that little bit of land. But I, I don't see it as being a huge problem because most of the grasses that we, most of the plants that we have um, can survive in something like more than 50% shade and not have any problem with that. Oh. And actually they might even benefit from having uh, shelter from, yeah. from colder weather or wind or whatever. So... And, you know, you have also have leaf fall as well. So, like, we'd say at the moment now, uh, in the fields now where all the leaves are after falling, mm. the the grass that's there now uh, would have an almost 100% of the light that's coming. And until those leaves come on in April or May or whatever, April, I suppose, or depending on the tree, um, there'll be, most of the light will be getting through to the ground. And... Um, by the time you get to summer, a lot of those there'll be there'll be a lot more sunlight, obviously. But these plants they can't even take up that sunlight. Hmm. It bounces off them and what have you. Yeah. They're not really designed to take full sun anyway. Yeah. Are you going to yeah. be planting trees next? We're planting all of it. We're planting the last five or six years, but they're just not high enough for you to see them yet, really. Right. No, but I mean, like you you, you saw those pictures that where is the uh cattle grazing in the you know between the trees and there's yeah. like a, some you know even uh, heavy machinery harvesting but there are like a row of trees on the both sides you know those sort of, sort of things is, is that the picture you have in mind picture when you're picturing your farm you know like a 10 years from now um i think it would probably take longer than that but i i think um it's like i was saying earlier about um knowing what the next step is like you know mm. when i knew 
yeah, I, if I could go back then, it'd be great. But I actually don't know exactly what's the best layout of trees or what way to plant them. Yeah. I, I, I suppose my knowledge wouldn't be brilliant on trees. Um, but there isn't a lot of other reference points out there for people doing this with trees, you know, in Ireland anyway. There is a few, there is a research place in the north of Ireland, I think, that has this setup of, it's kind of like a park system, really, mm. where you have grass underneath these nice trees. They're probably trees that probably will grow straight. I suppose there is ones there that will grow straight, even if they're um, mm-hmm. on their own. Um, and uh, they do say that they get a higher production overall. No. And they have the trees as well, you know. So, but like, you know, we don't want all those types of trees either. We want a mixture of everything, really, I suppose, because um, uh, I suppose, look, we could use it for firewood as well yeah. over time. And um, I suppose, yeah, it's um, it's not something I, I look, uh, the theory, in theory, I 100% that's the way we should be going. Mm-hmm. I just don't know, are we there yet? Yeah. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. like it's commercialized to, to actually get commercial good use out of the tree and still yeah. have your biodiversity as well yeah. you know that's the difficult part yeah. to actually commercialize it yeah. yeah like you mentioned you're 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 ultimately you're not running research and development here you're running business here so yeah. you're you're you you can you, can, you <laughs> cannot afford just uh, uh to risk too much you need to weigh yeah, the you, risk that you're taking versus you can you can do a small bit of research um within you know but you can't, you can't do it all. And, um, uh, you know, and look, I mean, some people have more interest in certain types of trees and they, they, look, some people are more interested in trees and taking care of them. Hmm. I'm probably more interested in milking cows and that kind of stuff. So like, I mean, I'm sure you could do, uh, you, I noticed farmers in England that are, um, they have apples and they have grain, Yeah, you know, and it seems to work well. And, um, the, Biggest issue with growing uh, any line of trees here is that it has to be fenced off until they're big enough that can handle a cow. Yeah. And that's, it could take a while. Like, that could take 10 years, really. And even at that, they could severely damage the tree. You know, when they're small, if there's any little mistake made, then the whole lot of trees could be eaten in one night yeah. <laughs> when they're small, you know. <laughs> so uh, I have a few fruit trees outside, the, just outside the front there. And like that's fine. They're as close to the house, and um, but it's <laughs> I've I've been trying to manage them with electric fence wire, and it is difficult because uh, it was one particular day with the horse in and the and and some uh, some heifers in there as well, and the horse was eating over the wire, and the <laughs> others were eating under the wire, and I was trying to keep the wire back far enough, but not too far uh-huh. back because you don't want too much grass growing up around the, yeah. the bottom of the tree. Yeah. You want to clear it a little bit. And it's like, you know, because I, I, you know, I, I, we don't have a lawnmower here. <laughs> I don't I don't want to be working lawnmowers that much. I want to try and graze everything I can when yeah. I have the animals that can do it. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, in some cases you might be better off just to fence the thing off for a few years. Yeah. Um, listen, listen, James, uh, you're, you're, you're obviously very well read and you're researching this stuff. You're, you're learning all the time and you're also very aware of the, overall picture uh with biodiversity and with farming and uh climate change water quality all these things we we, we discuss and like we said we have we have probably material for like a 
at least five other podcasts <laughs> if you want to if you wanted to kind of dive deep on everything that we touched on uh when we were discussing this off the record today listen like overall in in your view do you feel like um in the in a in a uh popular let's say media the farming is is sometimes or or often uh misrepresented or represented unfairly and then follow-up question to that is do you feel like some of that is uh there is reasons for some of that and then mm -hmm. practices like like yours and and similar regenerative farming woodland pasture all these things are really the the things we should look for to have a better biodiversity mm -hmm. uh improve the image of farming and and, and carry on uh what's your what's your views on on, on the, this whole situation yeah i suppose it's a big enough question because um most of the time i think um that in the let's say representation of farming in the media a lot of it comes down to actually animal welfare and that kind of stuff um uh, which if you're farming regeneratively and you're doing all that really well you would still could have the same sort of uh, issues thrown at you like in terms of like oh, I mean you know eating meat and maybe we shouldn't be eating meat and humanely slaughtering animals and these, these kind of things they would be things that I would be um, I don't know would I be concerned about them or just I do think that some of the time it's not a balanced picture uh, in the media uh, now at the same time I wouldn't shy away from the fact that there is problems and there is water quality problems and and there's profitability problems on farms as well so like they're all you know you know if we can solve something by you know it's it's not a magic bullet as such but it's as close as you're going to get to one by having enough diversity on your farm i think it's just some it's, you know we do need to move that way and um so like what's holding us back is you know there's a few issues i suppose but um you know i do feel that i suppose the the media landscape is fairly simplistic in in everything so it's a soundbite like i'd find it hard to explain to you in a five minutes what we're doing you know never mind having 20 or 30 seconds you know um on a on the, on the news in the, the night time so you know so like i suppose there's a few things that i would say are possibly being misrepresented in the media i'd say methane is probably one of them yeah. i i think like i mean there's no doubt that, that methane is part of what uh cow produces like you know uh part, like you see the two sides to the story are that methane um is part of digestion it's a part, the natural part of digestion. It's actually produced by microbes that break down the likes of cellulose in the plant. And say the likes of horses are not ruminants. They can't actually break some of them things down. Um, that ultimately, in the longer term, if you have grass just thrown out in the ground after being cut, that you are likely to have methane produced from that anyway, whether it is cut or eaten by a cow. And because it's just uh the co2 bacteria whatever aren't able to break these products down um 
is you know there it's like there there's a role in the ecosystem for uh methane uh because of you know there's a the whole class of um bacteria that make methane and eat methane and it's just part of a cycle it's just like we uh we take in food and we put out co2 we take in oxygen we put out co2 there's other things that do the reverse which are mostly plants um and methane there's a cycle of animals or little microbes that do put out methane and and take it in and um like in the warming into things from methane itself um you know there isn't a whole lot of acknowledgement that there would have been wild ruminants on earth long before us and they didn't cause the planet to warm now i'm not saying the planet isn't warming i'm what i would be saying is that um i don't think the biggest problem is uh is farmed animals as such they're replacing wild animals probably now look you could say you could pose the question as to whether there are too many of them in the world at the moment but it is fairly much accepted that if the animal if the ruminant population is the same then the methane is not going to rise in the atmosphere because it gets broken down after 10 years so if you have a constant population of of ruminants on the planet then it can't lead to more methane in the atmosphere but there has been methane spikes in the last you know since the industrial revolution um i you know it, it when you look at it all most of it's probably coming from fossil fuels mm. and from gas leaks and all that kind of stuff it's like i was even saying about the, the nitrogen being made from natural gas mm. um i i i saw an article there um it's from two or three years ago where they were reckoning that there was an under reporting of um, natural gas leaks at these sorts of plants that were making the nitrogen of up to 90 percent so like there was a whole load of it escaping while they're in the process of making the nitrogen and that's just nitrogen like fracking is one another thing there's loads of uh has to be loads of uh, gas escaping um you know i know it's not it's not a good thing for them economically not to be burning the stuff you know just that's been wasted but that's just what's happening and it happens you know there's natural gas with oil as well and in oil in oil um oil wells as well look i i don't know i don't know enough about uh, all the sources but there's also methane produced from bogs mm -hmm. and it's something that's not really been talked about as well and they're talking about re-wetting in ireland and you know it's an anaerobic environment and that's where methane is produced that's the, that's where the methane producing bacteria it's uh it's it's a complicated thing you see this is the point the point is that it's complicated and there is a natural ecosystem where methane is produced so are we getting hung up on the wrong thing yeah. that's kind of where i feel we're getting hung up on the wrong thing i think we we need to reduce our pesticide uses we need to reduce nitrogen these are the things that are causing probably the most problems in the world i think i think we're getting obsessed about methane i think there's a quite a possibility that there, some of the reasoning behind that is from an agenda of removing animals from our diets and stuff so they grab onto the one thing that makes them different and you know it's a greenhouse gas and we know it's uh, more powerful than carbon dioxide and um so it, it's um 
I, I think it's in the context of, of farm, farming issues, I think it's a red herring, the methane is. I, 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 it's not that I, I think it's not a thing in the atmosphere, but I don't think that the amount of it, but being yeah, attra- attributed to animals um, is as high as what's, you know, actually happening in the atmosphere yeah and and you know like to, to your to your point uh the we had a much higher densities of grazing animals like you know the, the favored favored by some the place to see baselines mm-hmm. and so on and so forth yeah uh we we, we actually <laughs> also had a discussion about the woolly mammoth and, and the like <laughs> today um and and the the, the more focus should be put into like you said improving soils and and enabling well-functioning ecosystem that can mm-hmm. deal and and cycle and circulate the, the these these gases within itself rather than uh, going heavy-handed and 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 in a quite limited and narrow way like oh we're gonna remove this and uh, yeah and what what's what's next so uh i, I think that that overall you're painting a picture which and I, and I don't think that many would disagree that the really farming is a solution to mm-hmm. environmental problems that we have rather rather than the than the problem you you know extremist views aside because they're always going to be there right so yeah. let's 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 just uh starve them of attention and let them die there <laughs> uh but you know within within the conversation that we're taking many factors into the account um i i i see what you're doing here as a as a future of farming and 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 maybe that is kind of like a segue to the question you know how in more detail how do you see the future of farming playing out because well, because sorry on, on mm-hmm. one end you you still have this and you know let's call a spade a spade like a powerful lobbies of mm-hmm. of you know corporates corporate multinationals trying to sell those chemicals having big plants and and kind of very much interested in maintaining status quo on the other hand you have equal players which are also big multinational big food industries who are jumping on the plant-based agenda let's call it that way mm-hmm. because that allows them to produce a lot of cheap food which you know it's super highly processed it's nothing even close to being healthy but it, it can have a label like all plant-based and then it seems like in in the middle the the real true solution is like it's in the middle with the farmers like yourself who are just saying like yeah folks let's let's just uh maintain like a cool heads here yeah um i suppose yeah we're look longer term like well i suppose we can't forget we can't forget that um we can't we can't just get away from farming in the in the medium to long term anyway we have to produce food you know it's no good having us uh starving um because of you know we just have to and we also have to kind of protect whatever biodiversity we have and improve it as much as we can so we we have to you know we can't say people talking about rewilding and different things like that's fine but we still have to produce food as well so you know what i would be suggesting is like and not to say that we don't do re- rewilding maybe in particular places or whatever but on the farmland you have to farm 
as close to nature as possible because you um you know longer term we won't be able to afford all of these fossil fuels probably they won't even they mightn't be there and you know we can't you know we have to have clean water so there's so many different things that we have to get right but you know demonizing farmers or whatever isn't gonna isn't gonna get us anywhere there and uh, neither is us kind of talking you know too harshly to people that are critical of us as well um we're just we don't want to alienate everybody Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it, you know, I, I, I think that most people can understand that when, if, if we can produce food, you know, well, and, uh, without using a whole lot of chemicals, that that's probably the way to go, you know, and if we, if biodiversity, never, that's probably the way to go, you know, and, um, you know, like I said, it's going to take a bit of time, but, um, Longer term, I think we'll probably look back. Uh, there was a lot of madness going on in in these uh, th- these years around now. Difficult times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen, and, and so are you overall optimistic when you look at the future of farming? Oh, because they, there's a lot of farmers who are very worried. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, with you know, all the regulations that are coming mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. and this and that. So I, I'm I'm curious, like like you know. Aside of the usual amount of uncertainty related to future, which have any, anyone have, yeah. But overall, you're you're looking optimistic. You know, you're optimistic. It's like, yeah, I'm I'm onto something here that I'm comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Or are you are you worried about the you know the whole farming sector? I think yeah, I think I'm more optimistic than ever before on farming. Oh. Because I think we can produce within our own farm gates most of what we need and sell out rather than be buying in everything. I think we can do that more so than almost any other industry. Because we'll say, now there is obviously things that at the moment, I don't know if there's any any solution that are a good solution for us. I mean, just say, for example, um, the energy for driving our tractors, for harvesting, for milking the cows or what have you like everyone else has the same problems there in in um in every industry plastic you know we use plastic for our silage pits or anytime we're buying a bag of something or other it's in plastic i mean where's the end where's that going to end up what what are we going to use to you know replace that when whenever we do figure out something everyone has that problem but i do think within farming we have uh if you have if you have to lend, of course, like, but if you're, if you've, um, within farming, there is an opportunity to grow without all of the chemicals that we've been using. Most of what we've been doing before, we'll have to farm slightly differently. You'll have to just use your, you know, more of your own initiative, I suppose, than, um, then, you know, we always had the solution of the, some, you know, this, this product in a jug or a bag, that could just get us out of trouble but we're going to have to plan further ahead or whatever you know we have to be a little bit more um i suppose you know we can't we can't be an autopilot i suppose um but uh, yeah I, I yeah i am more i'm more i'm more optimistic than ever i think that a lot of what's been happening over the years is that farmers have been getting bigger and bigger and bigger mm-hmm. trying to get economies of scale yes and 
it's not being like they think that it's cutting down their input costs and everything else they might be able to buy a unit uh 95 ch- as expensive as they were when they were a smaller operator or whatever but that's the the bigger they're getting the less efficient they're getting in some ways because they're having to take in so much labor and mm-hmm. and you know they're not able to get a real handle on what's going on anymore in the farms that's been happening over generations and it's been happening with every industry exactly but it's in farming i think what's actually needed is more people on the land to actually make the micro decisions that are actually the right ones for the farm because our farm is different than where you're down in Kerry. there's different land down there we'll say for planting trees plant the right trees for there rather than here or you know grassland species for you know that kind of stuff and management you know it might be a right bad day a wet day down there it might be dry here you know, there's no blueprint book you can write that will ever, you know, take the place of what a person on the ground could make a decision on the day. It mightn't be the 100% the right one, but the more people that are there, the more uh, eyes that are on the land, I think that's that can only be a good thing longer term. Now, am I saying we should be going back to when there was 90% of people on the land? I don't think we should. Uh, I, I do think that you're better off having people that kind of know a lot about what they're doing. Um, you know, I know there's been, you know, it's in the likes of parts of Africa where there was farmers that were on the land that got fired out and fellas that came from the city and they took over the land, mm-hmm. didn't know the first thing about how to farm. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to go down that road either, that kind of thing. But um, it's, it's, you know, I suppose over time, you know, I think this uh, the populations have been going into the big cities. I think that's probably going to have to change longer term. We can't have everyone living in the city. Um, <laughs> you know, it just doesn't make sense from so many and, points and of you, view. You see the you see the move. You know, like there there is a there is a substantial move from people from the city. Mm-hmm. You know, buying houses on the countryside and it's like this. Uh, you know, sometimes it's a kind of like a picture. It's it's too much of the romantic picture of like oh living yeah. in the countryside. Mm-hmm. But uh, I I think there is something in people, especially when you're when you're spending a few years in the city. I'm speaking from my own experience. You know, I I was born and raised in the city, and then you go to the countryside and you look at it and you just <sighs> and you just like oh this is better. Yeah. Yeah, no, like I always found it was like, as you're saying, uh, asking the question about uh, being optimistic or not, I uh, always kind of was a bit uh, stubborn about the fact that I felt that we needed to be able to, if I couldn't, you know, on a farm like this, if I couldn't uh, make a living on a farm like this, with all the education that I was given and everything else, um, that, you know, the, the only thing I could do was farming. You know, I could just say if you had some kind of a welding business or something, like yeah. that, it would be advantageous to be in a place where there's population, where this kind of a business mm-hmm. is the only one. I mean, maybe you could get some tourists out or whatever. Um, that that was losing its vibrancy over the years because more and more farmers were getting bigger and bigger and less farm people actually farming. Mm-hmm. And then you have not enough people in schools and then everything falls apart. Then you've got small villages, like there's no local shop in our local village. This kind of stuff is like, I always was like, this is something wrong with the way we're doing it. Like all these people are going to the city and these places on the countryside are going backwards. It's like, 
that can't keep going on forever. How are we going to, like, are you going to be like the lads in Australia where they send their kids off two hours away mm-hmm. to, to go to school? You know, like, you have to have a little bit, you know, you can't be so far away from your food. And like, you know, so something we didn't even touch on was um, bringing vegetables from other parts of the world. Yeah. It's like, you do need, it, the likes of vegetables, you do need more hands around there for picking vegetables and that, you know. But like, when you're talking about these big machine, um, you know, operations that are so specialist that they have to grow a particular one crop or <laughs> 500 acres of one particular crop, their machine might cost 2 million or whatever it is, crazy stuff. And by the time it gets on your into your food basket, it could be five, seven days old. Yes. As against if I was able to grow it in my own garden, you know, or in a more locally, like obviously, look, this is a price issue too because these vegetables have been brought in for so cheap. Never, it doesn't pay anyone to grow their own vegetables really mm-hmm. as such. But, you know, we still need to do that because, uh, you know, if you're if you're if the vegetables you're buying in or fruits or whatever are able to withstand going on a boat or going on a plane and lasting that amount of time and maybe they could be getting sprayed with something or other it's like you know does anyone know what's actually happening to those vegetables in the meantime and if they're able to withstand that that means they have to be kind of more woody or something yeah. you know like even an apple or some an apple that bruises easily is the one you want to pick straight off the tree and eat it. Yeah, it's probably the nicest apple you get, but that's not going to last on a on a on a truck going yeah. off. And if people don't you know, know that apples are being sprayed with a with a, with the chemicals, and the reason they so shiny in the shop mm. is that there, there's a, there's actually chemical put on them. Yeah, <laughs> apples are not shiny by default. Yeah, and I, like I don't even I don't even eat any apples anymore much because I always found them too hard. Mm-hmm. Just didn't like him. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't like this big hard bite into him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's only when you do a bit more research when you're trying to grow a few of your own ones. Um, most of the nicest ones are softer than that. Mm-hmm. But obviously they're more prone to diseases and things probably. But um, and maybe they're not, maybe not diseases, but just they won't, they won't take the travel yeah. in the commercial uh, yeah. orchards or whatever. So, you know, Uh, kind of gets back to growing more local stuff mm. if possible. No, you're right. Like a tra- um, like a transport yeah. and the and the sh- and the shelf life. These are the things that are really killing food. They're killing like a good quality yeah. food. Yeah, and it's it's. Uh, I suppose if you're to think ahead, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunities for farmers to uh, start growing the things in Ireland that we can grow in Ireland that aren't being now that are exported uh, imported now mm-hmm. so like i think 90 of our apples are brought in from outside mm-hmm. uh now look i mean obviously it still has to be done commercially or some description but um you know there has to be opportunities there there has to be yeah but it may not be through a supermarket there might be other ways around it yeah um but yeah. there has there has to be there has to and look When is it going to come the day that um, just say, look, you know, the Russian-Ukraine uh, war is happening now, but it could be a war somewhere else, and we don't get the flow of food from some part of the world that we were used to, and then we just don't have it yeah. because no one's grown it here. Uh, but you know, I mean, we're not going to get bananas in, but 
And I don't think the climate's good enough for bananas or oranges. <laughs> who, who, know, uh, who knows? Like a few more say, years. <laughs> well, look, <laughs> you wouldn't know. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, I get it. No, yeah. I, I, I get what you're saying, James. Listen, um, any final words of wisdom for, for our <laughs> listeners? You know, people who are listening who might be farmers or might not be farmers. If you want, you may do too. Like, uh, for non-farmers and for farmers, <laughs> words of wisdom, whichever way you want it. Words of wisdom. Jesus, I don't. Know. I'm I'm stuck for answers now. Um, the, the for farmers, I'd say, look, from what we're doing, the likes of what we're doing uh, with the multi-species wars, I just say, get out onto another farmer's place that's growing them and ask them questions, and don't just accept uh, everything you're hearing in the in the farming press or whatever. Just ask farmers and. Uh, do a little bit more de- digging because there's so much information out there. Like you, it might be landing on your in your newspaper every week, but it's there is information out there only to look for it. Um, I look the same probably goes for for uh, consumers of of uh, milk and meat and whatever and vegetables. Um, you know, there probably like there is. I know we get some um, local. Uh, meat uh from a pig producer who's the outdoor pigs and uh you know it's locally locally done like and you know uh, newbird farm i suppose you know they're 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 a small setup at the moment but like you know meeting the farmer that grows the food for you is uh it's nice you know it's nice for the farmer and for the hmm. person eating it like to, to know that they produced it and there's no hiding place then as to what was done to the, you know, like we're saying about vegetables and different things. Like, you know, if you're getting it locally of someone, mm-hmm. you know, all these things aren't on them, all these sprays and different things. Um, and it's, it's not necessarily about having to be organic or not, you know, just the fact that it's more local will mean there's less chemicals on it, less, less, uh, you know, less waste in, in driving the stuff here, there and everywhere. And, um, you know, it's it, it's nice to buy local stuff as well, and it's actually very hard to buy it local. Yes. Um. Oh, if man. you're actually trying to f- make your dinner every day from something that was within thirty miles of the place, you'd have a job. Yeah. You know, and that's aside from biscuits and all the crap that we shouldn't be eating at all. No, you it's know. like I was like when the when the village butcher closed uh, near where I live. It was like, oh my god, what am I going to get meat now? And yeah. you know, it was just just uncomparable. You can go go, you know, even like this thing. You go in, you have a chat. You know what you have. You know, you have like you know in the season you have a venison, or like you said, you have some uh, sm- pork and and beef from the small operators. It was pretty like like you you felt more connected to what you're eating. And then when you know uh, shortly before COVID, she he closed his shop and I was like, oh my God, I just, I guess I now need to go to the supermarket. And you're just like, ah, it's yeah. the same. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, you know, we've, we don't have any hens now because, um, foxes and dogs and stuff don't really like our hens, but, um, just producing your own few eggs and giving them to your folks, your family and what have you. And like, we weren't selling them or anything like that, but it's an, it's, um, you get more joy out of that than, than um, you know, than sending stuff off in a lorry load <laughs> and never meeting anyone, you know. <laughs> and when they come back and they tell you, God, they, they like the eggs, they were lovely or whatever, 
yeah. whether it's a drop of milk or whatever. Um, and my wife used to be making um, pesto and different things in the local village until until we had the kids. And, um, you know, you get feedback from that. And uh, it's a two-way thing. Like, those people want to eat local and they want to buy stuff from local people, but it's just not there for them. And it's nice to get feedback as well. And, you know, it's usually nicer. I mean, you know, the pesto, for example, like selling it for five or five euros, six euros, maybe you can get pesto in uh, Tesco or wherever for like a euro, you hmm. know, but it's, yeah, you'd still buy the five euro stuff because the other stuff is crap, you know, yeah. and, you know, it's long life it's stuff. It would last forever. Uh, you know, a problem with uh, making stuff in your own house or whatever is shelf life problems that if you want it to last a long time, you're going to have to use all these preservatives and different things that aren't going to really add to the flavor at all they're probably going to make it worse and um so these things have to be eaten locally reasonably quickly and uh but that that look that's a problem with the, the whole food system i suppose yeah you know but uh, yeah listen uh, <laughs> thank you for that it's, it's, it's been it's been a pleasure and I'm, I'm really glad to hear uh optimistic views about farming um so yeah listen uh i wish you all the best and good luck with what you're doing and uh, we probably should do it again and uh see where you are yeah, it could go it could go any direction yeah, yeah I, <laughs> i didn't think we were going to end up going the directions we went but yeah. yeah no look i mean there's a lot to talk about in farming and uh uh you know i look yeah it'd be my pleasure to talk to you again all right thank you all right thank you for listening If you enjoy the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show.